Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. It is. Back on format. Yes. No, actually, we're not, though, are we? Mm. Last week we were on format. This week we're not. This week we're kind of a bit loosey-goosey with the format. We, we don't have a format, thus we are we, on it. We do not have a format. Um, we do have a couple of bits of business this week, though. Do it. Two, count them, two... Yeah. Major comic book related events happened this week as we record this show. Did they? Number one. Number one. Thor 2 came out. It did. All credit to Marvel. They're not calling it Thor 2. No. Or Captain America 2. This time it's personal. Yes, they're, they're giving them subtitles and I, apl- I applaud their decision. It's a bit of a mouthful though. Yes, yes. Thor, the Dark World. Thor Dark World, Captain America Winter Soldier. I don't mind that. Just call it one and two like Iron Man did. Or just, or just call it The Winter Soldier. Nobody ever gets confused by James Bond films not having James Bond in the name, do they? Uh, the audience are a little bit smarter than that. Are they, though? I like to think so. You say to somebody, what's the spy who loved me? They go, oh, it's a James Bond film. So, uh, anyway, so Thor 2. Yeah. Brief spoilery discussion about Thor 2. I liked it. So did I. I thought it was pretty damn good. I thought, you know, it's a bit of a pain in the ass they killed off the title character near the end, but oh well. <laughs> He's not going to be Avengers 2 anymore, Thor, is he? Well, may- maybe they're going to bring back uh, Beta Ray Bill. That would be awesome. It would be cool, yeah. They did not kill Thor in Thor 2. Now that's a spoiler. <laughs> uh, no, it was good. I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Did, you not, did it not feel to you, given the sheer amount of exposition, expository scenes yeah. that were ADR'd, uh, you didn't actually see somebody talking? that it felt like there was a lot had been left on the cutting room floor. There was quite a few scenes where you heard dialogue, but didn't see them speaking. Yeah. Now, normally in a film when that happens, it's normally they've cut something out, so the actors had to come back and dub over a line or two to explain the edit. But I counted at least two scenes in this film where there were a paragraph of dialogue where you didn't see the person speaking. There was a begin- the whole beginning segment. Well, yeah, I don't mind the voiceover. Right, Because right. the first one began with that, didn't it? Yeah. But there was a scene with Odin where Anthony Hopkins was talking as he walked down a big corridor. So you couldn't actually see him speak. Yeah. So my thinking is there's, a, there's quite a lot of that left on the cutting room floor. Because Christopher Eccleston seemed a bit wasted to me. Yeah. He didn't really seem to have a lot to do. He wasn't awful because Christopher Eccleston never awful. It's just there wasn't a lot of... He didn't seem to have a lot of meat to get his teeth into. Yeah. And I just felt, was there a bit more of this that they've trimmed in the effort of making it more fast-paced? Maybe we'll find out on the DVD. Yeah, maybe there'll be like The Incredible Hulk with lots of deleted scenes. But the thing with The Incredible Hulk, every one of those deleted scenes deserved to be deleted. Yeah. 
So it's one of those, I don't mind seeing them, but I don't want them back in the film if they're going to slow the film down. Yeah. Whereas The Incredible Hulk, I think, is a pretty damn good film. And I watched all the deleted scenes, and I'm like, well, it's an interesting scene, but if you'd put this back in the film, God, it would slow that film to a crawl. Hmm. So, yeah, Thor 2, thumbs up. Yes. I mean, it'll probably be better on DVD, because I enjoyed the first one more on DVD. Which we watched before we were watching Thor 2 again. It did seem very different, though. There were a lot of bits in it that felt out of place in a Thor film. Do you think? The, I thought it was a The lot... dog fight bit. Oh, I loved that! No, no, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm saying it felt out of place oh, in I a Thor film. I thought it was film. quite good. Oh, alright, fair enough. The diet was very funny. Yeah. There was a lot of very funny lines in it, which I've discovered since we watched it. Joss Whedon did a script polish. Oh, yeah. And suddenly you're like, I bet Joss Whedon wrote that bit. That bit that I thought was funny. Fair enough. So, okay, big thumbs up for Thor 2. Perhaps not a thumbs up for, for what's next. What's next? The Days of Future Past trailer dropped this week. I've not seen <clears> it yet. As you know, lovely listener, and Michael, I don't watch trailers for things I know I'm going to see. you still not seen Captain America I've yet. still not watched Captain America trailer. I went to Thor knowing nothing about the film. Yeah. I didn't know anything about it. I'd watched no trailers at all because I knew I wanted to watch it. So I didn't know anything at all. I honestly believe it improves the viewing experience. I really do. Kel surprise, yeah. knowing bugger all about what you're about to watch makes you enjoy it more. I know I'm not being groundbreaking in yeah, this discovery, yeah. but I honestly think that's true. I saw Skyfall knowing nothing, loved it. Right. saw The Avengers without knowing anything, loved it. Well, I, I like watching the trailers for the Marvel films because there's a lot of things in the trailer that aren't in the film. I know, but you can always watch the trailer afterwards and go, "That bit wasn't in the film." I that guess, bit wasn't in the but film. I'm not hyped up for the movie after the film. Oh, I'm hyped up for Captain America too. Yeah, because I love yeah. Captain America. But that's it. I'm excited my, for my, it. But my point was, there's no point in watching the trailer after the film because the point of a trailer is to hype you up for the film. True, but but yeah. I'm excited anywhere. This yeah. is what I'm saying. I was excited for Skyfall, for the Avengers, for Captain America 2, for the Thor 2. Yeah. I didn't need to see the trailer to get hyped up about it. With stuff that I'm on the fence for, I will watch the trailer. In case so, it persuades you. Yeah, yeah. So Man of Steel, it did. Yeah. Man of Steel, I saw enough in the trailer to make me think, okay, completely new take on Superman, let's go and see what they're going to do with it. You've yeah. got me intrigued enough to get my bum in the seat. Star Trek Into Darkness? Not so much. <laughs> Everything I saw of that film made me go, no, I think I'll stay away from this. Yeah. And I still haven't seen it. Days of Future Past, I was on the fence with. Because X-Men First Class was brilliant. Yeah. X-Men First Class was a huge surprise. But is this a First Class film or an exact, film? Exactly, exactly where I'm going. X-Men right. First Class, I think, was excellent because it was... And here's another shocking revelation. Right. An X-Men film. Okay. None of the others have been X-Men films, if you look back on them. They're my... Wolverine films with the X-Men in them. Well, my question was, was it a first-class line of films, or was it the X-Men line well, of films? Well, I was hoping this would be a first-class film. Right. Because first-class was, as I said, oh, brilliant. It was really good. It was a real surprise. Yeah. And... That's why I think it's good. It's an X-Men movie. Yes, it's a Professor X Magneto movie again, mm. but it's a Professor X Magneto movie that is an X-Men movie. Right. As opposed to the Wolverine movies that have the X-Men in, and then they eventually just thought, well, screw this, let's get rid of the other X-Men and just do Wolverine movies. Yeah. And all right, that's fair enough. Hugh Jackman's fine. I like him. I think he's great. He's very good as Wolverine. He's not the comic book Wolverine, but whatever. 
But then they announced Brian Singer was coming back, right. and we discussed this when we covered Days of Future Past, and my spiders then started tingling. Yeah. Because all the criticisms that I have heard levelled against Christopher Nolan's movies, that they are technically brilliant, but cold, yeah. and completely devoid of humour, mm-hmm. all of those criticisms can be levelled against Brian Singer's movie. Yes. Can't they? Was Superman Returns a laugh riot? I think not. No. Was it portentous and po-faced? Yes, it was. Yeah. Strip away your nostalgic fondness for John Williams' theme and Marlon Brando being in it, and Superman Returns is not a very good film. Uh, I didn't have fondness for it anyway. Exactly. So it didn't tick your nostalgia buttons like it did with me. Yeah. So Superman Returns for me largely because of those nostalgia buttons. But I don't hold Singer's X-Men movies up in the same way that lots of other people do. And I know we didn't direct the third one, but his fingerprints are all over it. Let's be brutally honest, only one of them's any good. Two. Yeah, and even that is a Weapon X movie, isn't it? Yeah. That is Weapon X. Mm. It's not an X-Men movie. Well, I, I kind of... I, I started liking them more when I found out that um, David Hayter mm. wrote them. David Hayter was involved. The Solid Snake wrote them. So, oh, like that, yeah. And what did I say on the Days of Future Past show, or in yeah. subsequent email sections? I said, <laughs> Singer's back. Yeah. This is going to become a Magneto Professor X Wolverine film. No, 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 not even that. It's a Ian McKellen, Stuart Patrick, Patrick Stuart, and Hugh Jackman film. Yeah. Whatever, 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 whatever. I watched the trailer the other day. Yeah. I was moderately hyped for it because of First Class. Right. It is the first time ever mm-hmm. we have had a comic book movie. Yeah. Named after and specifically based upon a comic book storyline. Right. An excellent comic book storyline. Mm-hmm. One of the best comic book stories ever. So, of course, they're going to murder it then. So, so, but you see where I was going with it. Is it too much to ask that once, just once, yeah. we can have a proper, not literal adaptation, but a proper adaptation of a comic book storyline. And Ellen Page is in it, it's Kitty Pride, and suddenly I'm like, wow, maybe they're going to do it properly. Yeah. And then I see the trailer. And amidst all this po-faced, oh, woe is me dialogue and portentous <laughs> music, you get the scene where Wolverine says... So when I go back in time, my younger body will be okay. And I just went... (laughs) That's getting bleeped. Okay. And at that point, any interest I had in that film just went... (laughs) And as usual, I'm on the island on my own, waving at everybody else. But but I'm over here! (laughs) And everyone else is creaming themselves over this film. And that's fine. Would that not also be the point where loads of Ellen Page fans (laughs) suddenly suddenly go, oh, God. For me... Better not buy those tissues, then. It was like, when you're 13 and you first see The Shining, right? Yeah. There's a scene with the girl in the bath. Right. And as a 13-year-old, you get happy. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then she turns into an old, wrinkled, yeah, saggy yeah. woman. <laughs> and that's and what suddenly, film was. flop. <laughs> that's what that trailer did to my interest in that movie. Yeah. And I know I'm in a minority. I know tons of people who are creaming themselves over it. But honestly, I cannot understand why just once we couldn't get an adaptation of the story proper. I refuse to believe Ellen Page is not a good enough actress to carry that film. Mm -hmm. 
In fact, I know she is. Well, she but did. no singers back, so it's Stuart Magneto and Wolverine. Three characters who are barely in the original comic story. Yeah, and you know that Magneto won't die. And it's just... So, if you're looking forward to it, fair play to you. All, all best will in the world, you go and see it, but it's not getting my money. I may watch it for free later. But given that I've still not seen Into Darkness and can't bring myself to watch it, unless I hear spectacular word of mouth on this, I'm not interested. I mean, we probably will end up seeing it at some point because James McAvoy's in it. And your mum's a huge mark for James McAvoy. Mm-hmm. So we probably will. But if I, I may say, so if you want to watch James McAvoy, let's just go watch him filth. I, I want to anyway, so... Yeah, so... Anyway, should we move on? Maybe we should. Because the rest of the show will be happy, happy, joy, joy. I think the man's in it, in the, behind it. What man? The man who's also uh, not allowing anyone to make a literal adaptation of War of the Worlds. Oh, don't get me started <laughs> on that. Steven Spielberg announces he's making <laughs> War of the Worlds, and Andrew praises to the high heavens. Oh, Spielberg's doing War of the Worlds. We may actually get a proper adaptation of the book. Yeah. You know, the proper book. Set in 19th century England. How awesome would that be? No one's ever done that before. Except for the musical. Apart from the musical. Let's see a film at it. Let's see a tripod <laughs> tromp through 19th century London. And what does Spielberg do? He puts Tom Cruise in it and makes it 2005 America. Cheers, Steve. <laughs> still the most, the best adaptation. Yeah, the, music is, the musical is still the only adaptation of the book. The yeah. 1953 movie is, again, contemporary and set in another country. Yeah. No, <laughs> I want a proper adaptation of one of my well, favourite books. You have to think the aliens must have landed somewhere else at other times. So an adaptation of that boot, then, is it? I guess. Anyway, emails. We'll move on to emails. Podcast is the title of the first email. It's David Gutierrez. Ooh, Gutierrez. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, David. I do apologise. David's easy to pronounce. Guys, he says we do a good show, thanks, we appreciate that. I stumbled upon you through Michael Bailey's review of the Flash TV show, which was awesome. Go and check it out. As a new dad, I can think of nothing better than one day sharing my love of comics with my son. Well done, guys. You know, I've I've noticed that even now, 152 episodes in, you still don't like it when people compliment us. Um, It's not that I don't (laughs) like it. I do like it, and I do appreciate it, and it does massage your ego. I'm going to be honest, it does. Yeah. But I'm uncomfortable with it, aren't I? <laughs> you are, yeah. I am. I mean, Michael sits here and sees the emails that I read them, and he knows I skip over bits that say how good and cool and wonderful we are. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't do that. And maybe I should be promoting us Stan Lee fashion, or Mark Miller fashion. But I'm just, no, I'm a bit... Well, apparently it's a very British thing to downplay yourself. To be self, to not be self-aggrandizing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and David sent me the Petfly podcast for Revenge of the Trickster, which I need to listen to. It's on my iPod. I will listen to it. Thank you very much for that, David. We appreciated that. Uh, we had a bit of more of a conversation with David, but I don't know how much of that he wants read. I ended up, oh God, we fired off a good number of emails, but they were private correspondence, so I don't know how much he wants read on the air. But it was good, covering all things from Watchmen to No Man's Land and, and everything else. It was great. Uh, the next email is Andrew, sick no more. I just have visions of me walking away with uh, my... <laughs> tissues in the bin. Yeah, tissues in the bin. This is from Brian Hughes. Hi, Brian. 
I'm sorry to hear you have been sick, Andrew. Hopefully by now you are feeling better and can resume using your Doctor Doom voice to terrorise the little mice in the neighbourhood. I only say mice because I know you can't scare your own kids. No, my kids aren't scared of me. It's Halloween tonight. He's going to scare the other kids. Oh, yes, I would have loved to. Uh, I should have dressed up as Doctor Doom, shouldn't I? Mm-hmm. That would be awesome. I'm sending you an old family get well recipe so the next time you feel under the weather you can take this and get back to podcasting with full exuberance. Super Soldier Serum Recipe, a.k.a. the Lemon Fizz. Squeeze all of the juice you can from a lemon into a cup. Add an equal amount of water. Add one shake of salt and a half shot of booze. Scotch is my choice. Crush two aspirin to powder and then add one teaspoon locally made honey. Add one teaspoon of baking soda and drink quickly. <laughs> I would imagine you'd have to drink it quickly. Once you add the baking soda, the mixture will fizz quickly and is best drunk while fizzing. This will also help to get the medicinal qualities pushed throughout your body. Drink one each day that you feel bad, preferably in the evening so you can get some sleep. Addition of Vita Rays will help keep effects permanent. <laughs> Thanks, Brian Hughes. Thank you, Brian. I think we shall have to try that next time I'm ill. Our next email is Five Decades and Still Smashing. It's from Luke Giaconetta. Hello, Luke. Some say... <laughs> I've not done this for a while, have I? Some say he once had a basketball game with Godzilla himself. <laughs> and that he prefers Ambush Bug to Heart Map. <laughs> All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetta. To my fellow... You're going to have to pronounce that for me. Um, Daikaiju Thank Otaku. you. Thank you very much. Of all the Godzilla books... Do you know what that means? I have no idea. Uh, fans of giant monsters. Does it? Yes. Awesome. Thank Otaku is a fan of... Usually it's Japanimation. Right. We covered this in Metal Gear Solid. Did we? Yes. Otakon's name comes from Otaku. So it does. Yes. 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 And Daikaiju... Dai... I'm assuming means giant because kaiju means monster. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Luke, and for my, my translating partner. Yeah. My universal translator. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid and Pacific Rim. No, I've got it. Is that where you learned it from? Yep. Luke says, of all the Godzilla books which IDW have published in the run as the American license holder for the Toho Monsters, Half Century War was top of the heap. Well, I'm glad you didn't pick us a crap one. Yeah, that would have been awful, wouldn't it? Other superlative efforts include the five-issue Gangsters and Goliaths and the 13-issue volume simply titled Godzilla Legends, which was a five-issue spotlight series which was good as well. The first... Oh, no, I've said that. There was a 13-issue volume simply titled Godzilla, sorry, and Godzilla Legends, which was a five-issue spotlight series. The first ongoing titled Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters was something of a misfire, a pop-culture-infused, heavily political boot which eschewed... Go on. Daikaiju. Giant monster... In lieu of making fun of Lady Gaga, Texas Governor Rick Perry, and grousing for the Obama administration. The final series, Rulers of Earth, is currently ongoing as I type this, with the main gimmick being that it is using a ton of monsters who have not previously seen print in US comics, including Manda, Gezora, Varan, and Zilla, the American Godzilla. I only know Varan out of those. Do you? Because I'm watching Varan the Unbelievable in a couple of days. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, Michael and I watched King Kong vs. Godzilla. Yep. It was <laughs> marvellous. It, it was, was absolutely fantastic. The way they walk around. Yeah. Godzilla waddling his arms. And, and do you know what? Blokes in costumes stomping <laughs> on toys. What, what were they? Tanks? Yeah, yeah. Still better than CGI. Mm-hmm. Absolute, absolutely brilliant movie. We loved every minute of it. Yeah. Luke continues, Regarding changes to Godzilla's appearance in this series, it's tough to pin down because Toho requires IDW to use the modern-style Godzilla, millennium-style, in all stories, even ones which take place in the past. Godzilla's look radically changes through the original pre-1984 films, the Showa era, and settles down somewhat in the 1984-1994 films, the Heisei era, 
that right? No idea. Okay. Uh, PC, uh... Something like that. But there are subtle changes through essentially each film. As far as continuity, the Showa films had little continuity with few exceptions. The series was rebooted in 1984 with Return of Godzilla beginning the Heisei films. The Heisei films actually have quite tight continuity as events and each film generally caused a direct impact down the road. Like Michael mentioned, Biollante leaving for space at the end of Godzilla vs. Biollante is directly referred to in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla and Mecha Godzilla is built from the remains of Mecha King Ghidorah, who had appeared two films earlier. Earlier. In 1999, the Godzilla films were rebooted again, and then continuity was gone once more, save for two films made by the same creative staff in 2003 and 2004, Godzilla X Mechagodzilla and Godzilla Mothra Mechagodzilla Tokyo SOS, which are direct sequels. This sounds far more confusing than comics. Yeah, I know the only continuity so far that I've had watching them is Godzilla Reads Again is a direct sequel from Godzilla. Yeah. And... King Kong versus Godzilla is a direct sequel to Godzilla Reads Again. Right. But I've only seen those and Rodan so far. Right. Fair enough. As such, the Mecha Godzilla that we see in issue 4 is the Heisei MG, referred to as Mecha Godzilla 2. His shoulder cannons come from combining with the Garuda flying tank. The MG from issue 5 is the Millennium MG, commonly called Kiryu. Dragon. You. There you go, thank you. And is in fact a cyborg created from a mix of robotic parts and Godzilla DNA, specifically in the films, the skeleton of the original Godzilla killed by the Oxygen Destroyer in 1954. Also, the black hole gun from issue 5 is the Dimensional Tide, a weapon which debuted in 2001 Godzilla X Mega... Mega Gwirus. Thank you. Michael pointed out to Andy the little circle icons which indicate which monsters are on the cover. These are a requirement from Toho whenever the monsters appear in a licensed product, be it comic, DVD, release, game, whatever. If you look on the inside front covers of the comics by the copyright information, you can see the little icons for each monster which appears in the book, along with Toho's preferred English name for them. Andy mentioned that to his eye, Anguirus looked like a turtle, while Michael referenced the line from Final Wars about him being an armadillo. Anguirus, or Ange, as he is often called by fans, is based off of an Ankylosaurus. Much like Godzilla himself, he's based off a Tyrannosaurus and Rodan off a Pterodon. In fact, Rodan's name in Japan is Radon. It is a shortening of... Pteranodon. Oh, very clever. For what it's worth, Toho does have a minor monster who is a turtle, Kamiboas. And one of Godzilla's contemporaries from Dai Studios was a giant turtle monster, Gamera. Godzilla never actually fought Kamiobus. Did he not? No, because he appeared in one film which had three monsters in it that were only in that one film. Right, I see. Anyway, I loved this episode. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Um, the fact that you liked it means a lot to us, because yes. at the back of my mind <laughs> yeah. was that up, little thing that if we mess this up, Luke's going to get on our back. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to get it right for you. So, and if we've, if we've spread any Godzilla love to anyone else, then good. I'm happy about that. Because it was a very good series. Half Century War was a great series, says Luke. Wow. <laughs> and hearing you guys talk about it was a real treat. Stoku's very manga art style, having detailed backgrounds and cartoony humans, is a not uncommon style choice in boys and men's manga, is a perfect fit for the story, and the creative homage to each era are plain to fans without hitting you over the head. The storyline with Dr. Deverick gives a perfectly rational explanation for the continued escalation of the ever-present monster threat, which I liked quite a bit. And Ota remains throughout a relatable cipher for the reader. As Stoko presents the monsters through his eyes, we can easily put ourselves in his shoes. We recognise the struggle his life has been and how it all 
in the end comes back to Godzilla for him. Ota going out on his own terms, as Andy said, was a brilliant ending, and I cannot see any other way to tie a bow on his story through these five issues. Overall, a great episode as a cap to a great series of offbeat choices. Can't wait for what's next, Luke. P.S. No one else is doing Godzilla Half Century War. I'm going to go off and roll my eyes theatrically and sigh dramatically as I sign off this email. Well, we knew that you'd done it, Luke. But nobody else is going to have done it, is the point. There wasn't a plethora of podcasts yeah. about that topic, is what we meant. I knew you'd done it, because mm-hmm. I asked Luke, are we okay covering this, because you've already done it, because you don't yeah. want to tread on any toes. And he was like, no, 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 go for it. I just love hearing somebody else talk about Godzilla. <laughs> so so, so yeah, we're, glad, we're glad you dug it. Because in many ways that that was uh, a little bit for you, but mostly Michael picked it because it was his birthday. Mm -hmm. Finally tonight, we'll squeeze another one in before we move on to the meat of the show. Barbarians and Giant Monsters is the subtitle, and it's Rob Stubbs. Hello, Rob. Hello, Mr. Leyland, a master over 18 by now, Leyland, so that means you're a mister. Oh no, he he does say mister. Yeah, that's me, I read it wrong. I hope someone has recovered from the vast illness that surely is a curse from an evil sorcerer. I am, thanks. (laughs) I don't think he meant you. (laughs) I remember reading some of the Marvel Conan books back in the day with the depictions of that barbarian from a harsh, frozen land. I enjoyed the stories and enjoyed most part of the movies, and I even managed to take some enjoyment from the Conan TV series, despite it being largely bad. I have never seen it. I didn't even know that there was a Conan TV series. I'm going to make a comparison now in that Conan is a lot like Captain America, in that people who just look at the character on the surface will make some false assumptions. Conan, despite being an excellent fighter, just like Cap, is also really smart. The men share the similar characteristics of you can drop them anywhere, and whilst it may take a period of time, they will not only adjust to the local conditions, but thrive. I think that even people who did the movies didn't really understand that basic point. Who would you guys get to star in a Conan movie? I quite like Manu Bennett okay. for Conan. He was Crixus in Spartacus. And he's now Deathstroke, the Terminator, or Sled Wilson on Arrow. Okay. I quite like him as Conan. I think he'd be pretty good. Who would you get to direct and produce it? Uh, anyone who understood the property properly. <laughs> which is a very m- small group nowadays, I think. What if Del Toro did it? Del Toro. Yeah. Good choice. What story would you adapt into the screenplay, or would you get to write new material? I, I don't think there's anything wrong with adapting the original stories. Mm. That seems to me it worked well for the comics. I know Roy Thomas made some changes along the way, but I, I don't see anything wrong with adapting the original source material. Mm-hmm. That's the way I'd always go. I will admit that while I have seen a lot of Godzilla and other monster movies, I've never gotten into them. Perhaps it's the same reason I've never really gotten into the mixed martial arts shows. My brother owns a lot of VHS tapes of them. There have been at least two cartoons of Godzilla, one which aired in 78 to 81, with the cowardly cousin of Godzilla called Godzuki, who would call in his cousin with a roar, and the 40-episode Godzilla the series one, which takes place after the Matthew Broderick movie. Yes, one of the babies grows up. Does he? Yes. And is it good? No. Okay. The concept is it is one of the babies from the film grows up, and this this team of like say, say it's the A team, but they all have really cool weapons and robots and such. <laughs> they they hire Godzilla and hijinks ensue. <laughs> <laughs> hijinks ensue. Yeah. Which words you want associated with a Godzilla movie? I'm pre- I can't remember it because it was one of those that used to be on Fox Kids. But I'm pretty sure the concept was there are other baby monsters, right. so let's go kill them. Alright, fair enough. Okay, then go with that. 
The one thing I take away from these comics is it's the nature of man to struggle and fight and rebuild, even when these are big, larger-than-life destructive forces sweeping in, such as giant monsters. Godzilla is like an earthquake or typhoon or tornado in that even if we understand him, it'll make no difference when he shows up to an area, so we have to evacuate and try and redirect that elemental fury in some way. Unlike Ahab's obsession with the Great White Whale, which would have ended if he'd slew Moby, Otto Murakami wants to defeat Godzilla no matter if it's the original or a clone or a child or whatever he may be, to make that force of nature at least recognise the man that matters. Which of the three variety of monsters would you like to see made into a series of good movies? I think these questions are for you, to be honest. Um, three variety of monsters? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. Rodan. Because Rodan was pretty awesome. Was he? Yeah, right. Watching Rodan. Okay, mm. there's one Rodan. Okay, fine, yeah, we see him born out of an egg, yeah, okay. Born of an egg on a mountain top. Being in the cave, you yeah. know, it's kept him sealed, and alright, okay, fine. Then another Rodan shows up, out of nowhere, and then the best thing about Rodan is he can fly like a jet, with the sound of a jet, without mm-hmm. moving his bloody wings. Alright. just goes, <laughs> <laughs> Does he make that exact noise? It's kind of like a... So there's Rodan. Right. Two others. Um, King Ghidorah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, Mothra's pretty crap. Um, I don't know. All right, well, you ponder. So two's good. Yeah, two's yeah, yeah. good. I like the first one. The first one got you pretty infused. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which of these Godzilla-style monster movies would you erase from existence entirely and why? Again, that's a question for oh, you. <laughs> they, all, they, all, they all have the... They all have elements. The Matthew Broderick one. You'd yeah, okay. throw that into a black hole, wouldn't you? I guess. Or is there even good bits of that? I like the design. of. I like what Godzilla looks like in that one. All right, okay, fair enough. Which giant monster would you choose to fight if you had to? Um, if I had to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think... <laughs> I think that question should be, who would you choose to fight a giant monster? And we would always go for Rocky Balboa. <laughs> Right, so not which monster would I fight? Yeah, well, the question was which would you fight, but I think you should say I would get Rocky to fight him on my behalf. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd, I'd probably I'd go take on uh, Anguirus. Would you? Oh yeah. Well, you think you could take him? Oh, that giant jellyfish. All right. <laughs> the giant jellyfish. Yeah, the one from King Kong vs Godzilla. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah all right. Okay. Which giant monster would you make your pal? Just like Space Godzilla or Gigan, because it's like. You know, that kind of guy can kill Godzilla. You want to be best friends with it? That's a good point. Yeah. You want to be friends with the guy that can crush Godzilla? Yeah. All right, fair dues. Uh, your American friend, who is not a giant monster of any variety, Rob Stubbs, uh, and he did a PS, which was a cartoon update, but I haven't seen any of them. Yeah. So I don't really think I could comment. I'm even behind on Beware the Batman. Uh, we'll knock it on the head with email though for this night, for that is the 30-minute mark, and we know I'll try and keep it under that. And we will take a break, and we'll be right back with Nick Fury, My War Gone By. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-Death and Return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. 
Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But from Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com And we are back. Michael's eating Haribo today. I was just going to... Well, I got them all out of the bag, so I would make a noise. Coca-Cola bottles. Yeah. It's your beverage of choice. Beverage. Because your buyer's actual Coke. I have to get my fix off these. <laughs> you can have Panda Cola and like it. <laughs> Real stuff for me. Jim Steranko left Nick Fury behind with issue 5 of his own book, although he did contribute the cover to issue 6, and the book limped along through issue 15, whereupon it became a reprint title before its ultimate cancellation with issue 18 at the tail end of the 1960s. Had the bursting of the spy bubble finally succeeded in killing Fury where the Nazis and Hydra had failed? Well... No. As with all comics characters in the Marvel Universe, Fury simply made guest appearances in other titles before the time was right to be relaunched, repackaged and reissued. And the Howling Commandos comic was continuing, and would continue until 1981, keeping Fury in the public eye. He appeared in another series in the 80s, along with many miniseries and one-shots that established his shared history with Wolverine, The Punisher, Black Widow and Captain America, and was even established as being responsible for Peter Parker's parents, Richard and Murray, being recruited as agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was even killed off, although that was later revealed to be a life model decoy. Of course. Despite not having his own ongoing comic much in recent years, he has been a busy boy. The Countessa was revealed to be a scroll in Secret Invasion, Shields was revealed to have always been under control of Hydra, and Fury goes underground, leading to Steve Rogers becoming the head of a new branch of Shield. After the appearance of a son he never knew he had, Fury retired from active service. Why do you go underground? I can't remember. Because Secret War, he did something bad that he shouldn't have. Did he not? Nope. Secret War, the Bendis miniseries. Yeah. Nothing to do with Marvel superheroes. Secret Wars. No. Right. Never read it. However, over in the Marvel Max and Knights universes, Garth Ennis took the opportunity that the Max imprint offers to deepen and mature Fury, putting him in many situations that have no clear-cut good guys or bad guys. Marvel Max, for those unaware, is an offshoot of Marvel Comics, where creators are encouraged to tell stories with more mature themes and aimed at an older audience. Kind of like Vertigo. The first of these, by Ennis and artist Derek Robertson, was simply called Fury Max and released in late 2001, early 2002. 
It's centred around an elderly fury in the present day dealing with bureaucracy and political correctness whilst trying to prevent a military coup in a far-off dusty country. This miniseries is notable for a number of things. First, it is alleged that George Clooney was approached to play Fury in a film version of the character but was horrified by this series in which the character smokes, swears, indulges in young escorts and has little time for political correctness in between blowing people's faces off. Secondly, Stan Lee himself didn't like the series, wondering why Marvel would release a series like this with an established character like Fury. It's true that this version of Nick is a little older and more cynical than the Fury we readers of his adventures in the Marvel Universe proper are used to, but it does kind of fit in with his character that the more grey areas and the political landscape of the time would be frustrating to him. However, none of this excuses the fact that the initial Fury Max series isn't very good. It's Ennis by the numbers. There's a shed ton of black humour and the art is exceptional, it's true. But there's nothing new or interesting in this series that Ennis hasn't done a thousand times before. There's the requisite OTT violence, which in this series just seems to be here because it can be, rather than serving a point. The addition of Fury's ridiculous comedy nephew, which is almost as embarrassing as the inclusion of Lenny Luthor in Superman 4, and the addition of F***Base, complete even with a reference to Root Jr., is largely superfluous and has no payoff. It's a foregone conclusion that Fury's team, none of which are the howlers of old, will all die, and Fury's ultimate reaction to S.H.I.E.L.D. did feel a little out of character, but this is one of Ennis's writing tics. He doesn't really care what has been established before, he only cares about his story. Granted, in this mini, he doesn't actively contradict past history, although Dum Dum Dugan is here seemed to be a happily married retired agent, but he doesn't really embrace Nick Fury either. He could have told this story about anybody. By contrast, the recent Fury Max series, My War Gone By, was much better. Although all the continuity nitpicks still apply, nevertheless, I'll always let continuity nitpicks slide if the story is good, and this was a much better series than the previous one covering Fury's entire career as a CIA agent after the war. The title, from a book by Anthony Lloyd concerning his times as a war correspondent, takes on an even deeper meaning when given in full. My war gone by, I miss it so. This 13-issue series was cover dated May 2012 through June 2013, and was entirely written by Garth Ennis with art by Goran Parlov. Did I say that right? I've no idea. The series was broken into story arcs, each concerning a different period of US political history and concerning a different US conflict, playing into Ennis's strength as a war history buff. Each of the stories are broken up into arcs, with the first, set in 1954, in Indochina. The cover by Dave Johnson is a lovely little abstract piece. An elongated sketch of Nick Fury is seen in silhouette, and inside we see a scantily clad lady and soldiers marching carrying a Vietnamese flag over Laos and Cambodia. Issue 2 has a silhouetted Shirley DeFabio running her hands through her hair, whilst inside her form, which isn't the first time, Fury opens fire in front of the French flag, and the third cover has a stunned and shell-shocked Fury inside the silhouette of a Vietnamese soldier. They're all eye-catching and really rather excellent. Did you like them, Michael? Uh, yeah, I like the covers to this series. I liked how each arc, because it's broken down, like I say, into three, four three-issue arcs and a one-issue epilogue. Yeah. And I did like how each arc had a different cover layout. 
Yeah, I, li- I like the little postcards one. Yeah, I love the, the, the Cuban one. Yeah. For the next story. Yeah, I think they're my favourites, to be honest. All the issues had individual titles. Issue 1, While All the Planet's Little Wars Start Joining Hands, is a lyric from The The Song Sweet Bird of Truth. Issue 2, number 1, which is a line from Full Metal Jacket. And number 3, And Some People Left for Heaven Without Warning, is not surprisingly, for a Garth Ennis story, a lyric from The Pogues, enti- a song entitled Sally McLennan. I'm sad to say I must be on my way to fetch a pail of whiskey because I'm going far away. Carry on! <laughs> I'd like to think I'd be returning when I can to me, 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 with Sally McLennan. Is that how I did I pronounce it wrong? Uh, I don't know, that's that. That's how Shane McGowan yeah, says yeah. it. Alright, fair enough. I don't mean it's right. I don't know, he could be singing Just it. how Shane McGowan <laughs> says it. <laughs> The miniseries kicks off in the present day. Nick Fury dictates his memoirs, explaining his role in many important conflicts of the past. He tells how, having disobeyed orders to leave behind a convoy of men in Korea instead of rescuing him, which he did, Fury now finds himself in the French-occupied colony of Indochina. Though he meets Congressman Pug McCuskey, who stationed Fury here in the first place. Pug is convinced that if Indochina falls from European control and becomes communist, the rest of Southeast Asia will follow. To that end, Fury and his attaché George Haverly meet with French Major Lalment to visit a fort at Sun Chow. The fort is ill-equipped and underfunded with undisciplined troops at a location that is hard to defend. Lalment, which I hope I'm pronouncing right, hopes that this will lead to an increase in American backing to help strengthen France's position in the region, as so far the only officer they have worth a damn is a former Nazi officer at Steinhoff. Hatherley, a Jew, doesn't take too kindly to Steinhoff, and whilst Fury spends the night with Shirley Di Fabio, Pug's secretary, Hatherley returns to the camp to kill Steinhoff. Hatherley is beaten after attacking Steinhoff, and Fury returns to the camp to pick up Hatherley and give Steinhoff a kick in. However, the battle is interrupted when the camp is attacked by communist insurgents that Fury and the rest are barely able to turn back. Fury explains the facts of life to Haverley, that while Steinhoff was a Nazi, now he's a soldier with no war to fight, and indeed it seems like the horrors he committed in the war were in no way personal, something that repulses Haverley. When a chopper arrives to take Fury back, Fury places the injured Haverley on it, which is fortunate for him, as he misses the insurgents attack the camp for a second time. They had an inside man who blows up the ammo dumps and kills everyone in the attack but not Fury, who is badly concussed. The inside man reveals himself to be Captain Litrong Gayap, and he tells Fury that this region is not somewhere the West can come out and work out its frustrations, not without bloodshed. This is no longer French Indochina. It is Vietnam. Fury walks off past the severed heads of the garrison, including the heads of Steinhoff and Lalmont. And that was the first story arc. Now, given the nature and length of the story and the fact that we wanted to cover this all in one show, we are eschewing the regular format in lieu of talking about the various story arcs as a whole. Again, given how Ennis writes, it's easier to talk about scenes rather than do a page-by-page dissection. The story starts with an aged fury dictating his memoirs into a tape recorder. Ennis really pays any heed to continuity, but he does pay lip service here to the fact that because of the Infinity Formula, Fury barely ages. After a splash of Fury, there's a two-page splash that shows elements that will only come into play over the course of the series, and even hints that we will get certain characters that first appeared in Ennis's Punisher Max. The is Frank Castle. Yeah. And there's Barracuda. Yeah. I like the, 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 the cassette recorder he's using. 
Right, the ye olde cassette recorder. Even it's an old reel-to-reel, isn't it? Even though he's in 2013. Yeah, he's still using a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Yeah. Well, the implication is he's been recording these tapes for a while. I... Is my, my thinking was he's been recording this for a while as a way of getting his own head straight. I assumed it was all in one night, but even though the room he's in is the same, it does change. Like, the further he gets in, there's the three ladies oh, no, I and g- the bottles. Yeah, I I got the feeling he'd been doing this for a while. Right. And maybe this was different hotel rooms, different women, but same I, day, different stuff. I was of the opinion that after what happens in the last issue, yeah. he then is reflecting on it from the start. So, oh, right, so he's reflecting on George Hatherley, essentially. I get what yeah. you're saying. See, I took it that, yes, this was a couple of evenings of him reflecting on his relationship with Haverley, but I got that he'd been doing these tapes for a while. Right. Because he does mention, God forbid, somebody should ever get their hands on them. Yeah, yeah. Which he doesn't want. So, well, both interpretations work, don't they? Mm. I think. Uh, the opening scenes have a very Our Man in Havana feel, as Fury and Haverley meet in Indochina, with Fury looking very relaxed. Did he not remind you of Bruce Campbell's character in Burn Notice? Yeah, he did. Sitting in the sun sipping whiskey. Yeah. Uh, I I got a very Sam Axe vibe (laughs) from that bit. The art's very good, evoking the sun-kissed, rather bland landscape, and Fury's dissatisfaction with his posting. The way Shirley DeFabio is introduced is pretty good as well. We see her in shadow, watching Fury and Haverly meet. She's in the background, though. Mm. Did you notice that? I didn't. Just stood watching them. That actually takes on a very sad er when you know how it ends. Yeah. Because she's eyeing up Fury and she ends up with Pug. Yeah, Hadley's there. She's always ignored Hadley, yeah. who said to her at the end. Yeah, which would have put her life in a completely different direction. Yeah. Which is. It's, so that's. Is he not married at this point? I didn't get that he was married at this point. Right. He is married later. And he ends up having um, a good number of children along the way, doesn't he? Because he ends up having six He says, what is this, you sick? (laughs) (laughs) Just get it cut, man. (laughs) Get it cut off. And and then do it made me, you know. Which is the funny line where it's like, I'm sure there's plenty of your children running around. Yeah, but I don't give them my address. (laughs) So which does play into the fact he has ended up with an illegitimate son who looks like Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I did like Fury's cynical nature, which was already coming to the fore at the beginning of the strip. Fury's essential character remains the same, and we get a lovely little character beat where we learn in one simple line why he still does what he does. Haverly looks across the road at the American Embassy, with the stars and stripes floating in the wind, and asks, do you believe that means anything at all? And Fury replies, I believe it should. Fury asks Haverly what it means to him. We do not get an answer to this question until the closing pages of issue 13. Mm. Which I thought was great. Yeah. Lovely piece of uh, cyclical storytelling. Very clever. By contrast, I actually found Shirley's introduction to be a little bit NEC. Yeah. Did you know that thing? She's hit upon by a Scottish Highlander who I'm sure is in Indochina for a reason, and she beats the snot out of him. It does the job, and the sparks are there between her and Fury from the minute they meet, which is a pretty good piece of writing. But it was an exceptionally... This could have been Tulip. Yeah. Couldn't it? In this scene. Where she then beats him over the head with a chur. Mm. So, yeah, it's not awful. She becomes quite... That becomes very downplayed later on, where she does become pretty 
defenceless. Yeah, well, that's her character arc, isn't it? She becomes the haggard housewife. Yeah, that she didn't. That she she wanted to be really. Mm. She wanted to be married to somebody of stature. That's what she was out for. We get a party scene later on where Nick Fury and Haverly are, are supposed to do the politics thing. Nick's not very good at it. It's done well and plays into the themes Ennis likes to explore, how Fury is a soldier, but has now risen to such a rank and position that he has to attend functions like this. Learning why he's here is handled well without the usual bad exposition such a backstory normally entails, and the political intrigue is nicely played, with Fury being concerned that whilst American intervention is probably needed here, he does feel the US has an obligation to use its power wisely. We contrast this with the senator, Pug McCuskey, who says all the right things, but as usual with Garth Ennis stories, isn't telling us everything. Oh, I didn't like Pug. Did you not like him from the beginning? Well, uh, from the beginning he felt like the character you shouldn't like. Yeah. But then further as the series got on, I I, I just didn't like him. You actively disliked him. I did. If the series can be said to have a bad guy... It's Pug McCusker. Yes. It isn't Litrand Giep. It isn't Barracuda. Yeah. It isn't any of the because people... Because every single character has the yeah. shades of grey. Yeah, every single... Well, not just that. Every single character has their point of view. Yes. And McCusky's doing this purely for money. Yeah. Is what we find out. We've just ruined the ending for you. <laughs> McCusky's in it for the money. Mm. And all the other people are doing it for various different... I mean, Barracuda's in it for the money... But Fury can kind of understand that. He's in it for himself, Hmm. in many ways. Whereas McCuskey's doing this, he's destroying lives. The war economy. Yeah. So, if the series can be said to have a bad guy, it's McCuskey. Yeah. But, I do... I didn't not like him, but I didn't trust him. But he's a politician. Yeah. So, that's kind of in the job description. (laughs) Fury's visit to the camp with a lament is a very good, again, tying into all of Ennis's strengths as a writer. He points out the difference between the people who make the decisions and the people who have to enact them. He gives Haverly a lovely scene with Steinhoff, where Haverly cannot let the past and the horrors Steinhoff committed in the war go, despite the fact that Steinhoff has, and doesn't think of what he did as bad, just doing his job. It takes Fury in a later scene to spell out that World War II is over, and Steinhoff is now on their side. I did like that Fury pointed out this is just the way politics work. Yeah. Again, that will play into the final issue of the series, mm. when he meets Litrong Giep at the Washington Monument. Yeah. And he realises he's not the bad guy anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not fighting him anymore. Mm-hmm. Fury reports back... And even though the action is great, Ennis shines in the dialogue scenes with even Pug repulsed by the ruthlessness of the Viet Minh. And Fury's report that this may not be a wise move. The Viet Minh, am I pronouncing that right? Viet Minh? Minh? Take the camp in a typically bloody Ennis war scene. But unlike the previous Fury Max miniseries, the violence here serves a purpose and shows exactly what the French were fighting. Interestingly, they don't kill Fury. Mm. Instead, loose, letting him loose as a warning, as Fury is concussed and largely useless at the end of the story. Well, he wasn't with them anyway, really. What officially are... Would it have not done them any good to have killed an American soldier or an American CIA agent? Well, that as well, but he wasn't with them. 
I mean, they, 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 they killed them as a message that it doesn't belong to the French or the Americans, it belongs to the people who live there. Right. So, Fury's not part of the French that acted like they belonged there. Oh, right, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and maybe killing a CIA agent would have brought on them a lot of trouble that they didn't want yet. Yeah. It's possible. At the end of this, this was really... Yeah, the last page, Fury sets up earlier in the story that the Viet Minh cut the heads off the people that they fight and put them on spikes. Well, it wasn't just that. It was when the fight starts, and I was just as confused as they were when one of their own guys blew themselves up. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And then... Oh, right, you didn't know there was an inside man. No, no. So when he blew himself up, I was like, what? And everyone else was like, what? Yeah, it was excellent. It was a really good piece of storytelling. The last bit with a German guy, who, I'll be honest, I did come to like... Because but as, see, as see. Fury pointed out, you're not supposed to, but when they needed to, they fought alongside each yeah, other. Yeah, which was the point Fury was making. Yeah. So Havala, he's not the bad guy anymore. I just really liked it, how they're beating the crap out of each other. Then they get bombed, and then like, and side, then by side. Yeah, yeah. side by side. And then they side by side. Which the is last... the themes of the, the, the entire series. Yeah, but that last bit where he's got no eyes. And yeah. And he, he says to them, you're lucky I don't have any eyes, because I kill you all now. Yeah. It's actually very, very effective ending to what was a very good opening. It's very enmeshed in the US politics of the time, which I don't pretend to know anything about, but it's to Ennis's credit that I didn't need to know any of that to find this a gripping and entertaining read. Ennis concentrates on taking Fury, who was a hero in World War II, what has been referred to as the last good war, and drops him into a situation that isn't quite as clear-cut, is a very interesting approach to the character. Overall, it was an excellent beginning, wasn't it? Mm. Did you read the first one? The first Fury Max series that he did? Or did you not bother reading it? I, I was thinking of. Because it was only six issues. Yeah, I was thinking of, but just didn't. Derek Robertson's out, that's nice. He didn't do the first issue, did he not? Yeah, Derek Robertson did the first one. Did he? Yeah. Alright. I don't know, sucks. it didn't look like his... And uh, Bill Sinkovich's covers were good, but, you know. Yeah. Nowhere near as good as this. Yeah. Well... Um, I, I really like these ones because the the very Cold War oriented. Yeah, and I'm 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 a fan. Well, not a fan of the Cold War, but you know, a fan of Cold War stories. Right. See, I prefer the Vietnam ones. Well, that's that does play that's, into yeah, yeah. into our interests, doesn't it? Yeah. I I did like the it's Vietnam part of Cold stories. War anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I suppose so. Um, the second story out ran through issues four through six. And this time the covers, again by Dave Johnson, show a postcard across the bottom for Cuba, Havana and the Bay of Pigs, respectively. Whilst across the top, Nick Fury looks very much the super spy. Then he takes aim down a sniper rifle at Fidel Castro and finally is a captive. Again, all excellent and look like the work of a different artist showing Johnson's versatility. Covers to these three are excellent, aren't they? Mm. He's very much James Bond in the top of the... He is Bruce Campbell, though, isn't he? Yeah. Do you think they're drawing Bruce Campbell as Nick Fury? Yeah. Because he, would, he wouldn't make a bad elder Nick Fury, would he, now? Uh, if he wasn't as tubby. Well, you could lose a bit of weight, but as an, perhaps as a Nick Fury who's gone to seed a bit. Yeah. He would... He actually... Especially now he's greying as well at the temples. I don't know, what do you want to mix between Campbell and Eastwood? See, I think Clint's a bit old now. I know. Is the is the problem? But, but you Clint, want someone who can stay in between. In Dirty Harry, Clint would have been perfect as Agent of Shield, Nick Fury. Yeah, but yeah, he's getting a bit on now. For Bruce, this story, you want? I, I don't know. A, a, Bruce Campbell could pull this off now. Yeah, 
Yeah. I don't know how they do all the flashback stuff. They'd have to dye his hair or something. Yeah. Or maybe he could lose some weight, do the early stuff, and then put some weight back on, and like they did with Tom Hanks in whatever that film was, where he talks to the beach ball. Okay. Yeah, I forgot his name. <laughs> this time the chapters are called If We Was Meant To Be Cowboys, which is a line from Lonesome Dove. Get Ready To Shed A Tear, which I think is a paraphrase of a line from Julius Caesar, and... And go to your guard as a soldier, which is a line from Rudyard Kipling's 1895 poem, The Young British Soldier. 1961, Pug McCuskey has gotten fury involved in the US government backing of the rebellion against communist dictator Fidel Castro, and they have helped plan a rebel invasion of the Bay of Pigs, whilst Fury's clandestine affair with Shirley DiFabio is brought to an end when she informs Fury that McCuskey has proposed to her. Fury and the leader of the Cuban rebellion have tasked Fury with assassinating Castro. Fury has to accept deniability, but he can't do the mission alone, taking with him crack sniper George Haverly and a radio man named Elgin. However, both the invasion and the assassination fail miserably and leave hundreds of rebels dead and Fury and his team captured. Castro's men want to know who pulled the trigger that almost killed Castro and initially Fury's team refused to speak, especially after Fury realises that they want them to confess on television. McCuskey, meanwhile, has fled after the disaster, leaving DeFabio to fend for herself against the betrayed rebel leaders. To get Fury and Co. to talk, Castro's men take Fury and his team to the docks and cut Elgin in a very painful man area and then feed him to the sharks. As the men watch the frenzy, an enraged Fury manages to loosen his bonds and with Hatherley, they manage to knock a few of Castro's men into the sea and, in pitch battle, Fury tears the face off the leader with his teeth. Haverly pulls Elgin from the sea and they make their way to a boat and head for Florida. DeFabio manages to escape the rebel leaders, albeit not unscathed, and returns to McCuskey who begs her to stay, pointing out that she has nowhere else to go. As Fury's team make their way across the sea, Elgin comes around and realises he's burly a torso. As Haverly tries to tell him that his wife will love him anyway, Elgin thanks Haverly for pulling out of the sea and looks at Fury. Fury shoots him in the head. What do you think of that ending? Um, I don't know. Cause Which is exactly, I suppose, what you're supposed to think. Yeah, at the time it was very out of... It was the shock of it, really. Mm, that Fury's just killed a CIA agent. And it ended the... I but mean, also... why he did it. And Elgin didn't ask him to do it, either. He didn't yeah. have to. He just thanked Haverly for what he did and looked at Colonel Fury and said, Colonel. Yeah. And Fury knew exactly what he was asking him to do. Yeah. I thought it was an excellent ending. And I really did think this was a, an excellent ending to an excellent opening. Fury's training people. He knows he could very well be fighting in a few years, which is what he talks to Hatherley about. But this was a really funny... Yeah, it was a nice little scene. ...opening, where uh, Fury tells him you took 50% casualties just because you wanted to fight face-to-face. Mm. And then Hatherley actually says, was my end quick and painless in your Hatherley? He said, right between the eyes, you didn't feel a thing. Yeah, it was it was a very funny opening. I li- I liked the line where it's um, but we couldn't have seen him. He w- if we looked at him, the sun would have blinded us. Exactly, That's the <laughs> exactly the point. Yes, a very good, darkly comic opening. Despite the fact Fury knows he could very well be fighting these people in a, a few years. Mm. For the most part, this issue is just set up for the next two chapters, and story-wise, it's quite slight. There are scenes where we start to get a feel for the kind of man McCuskey is, and, in a true surprise, he's not to be trusted. No. Were you shocked by that story development? I, I, I was not. 
No, I have to say I don't think I was completely shocked by it either. The subplot of Shirley agreeing to marry McCuskey is actually quite bittersweet. Shirley is a realist, and she's now 36 years of age. And realising that marrying McCuskey is probably the best she can get. And it'll be comfortable. It's not like she's waiting for Fury to ask her, as she points out in the story. They still sleep with each other anyway. Yeah, but she br- she breaks it off in this one, doesn't she? No. But they end up just ending up back with each other. Yeah. Because she does actually say to him, we're not seeing each other again, because I'm yeah. getting married, and that doesn't last. Mm. When she realises that McCuskey's a bit of a slime ball. The actual mission in issue five is expertly handled. The art is beautifully simple without being simplistic and is genuinely thrilling and fast-paced. Especially tense is the sniper scene. Hatherley takes aim at Castro and the mission is botched purely by bad luck. A soldier happens onto the roof where Fury and his team are just about to pull the trigger. The shot goes wild and kills a tank operator, which in another I thought darkly comic scene crashes into the building Fury and his team are on, bringing it crashing to the ground. And so they end up getting caught. Just It was just bad luck, really, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. That soldier just chose to walk onto the roof at that time. Yeah. And prevented them from carrying out the mission. McCuskey just getting up and leaving Shirley at the tender mercies of the Cuban rebels is symptomatic of what a scumbag he is. And it's in keeping with Ennis's portrayal of politicians generally, isn't it? Yeah. He's never portrayed politicians in anything that I've read of his work in a positive light. Hmm. He has a very cynical viewpoint of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not entirely unjustified, one one would imagine. Even more tense, the torture scene in issue six. The Cuban military have the rebels tied up and one man's head in a vice. Yeah, this was pretty... Yeah, this was full on, wasn't it? That that panel where you see the guys hanging as well. Yeah, I mean, earlier on in the same, he's got a couple of guys hanging. None of them look like they've been beheaded or anything, but they're all dead. They've got a guy's head in a vice... Which only gets worse. Yeah. To get Fury and his team to talk, they slowly... Yeah. ...wind the vice in on his you head. You can see his eyes. His eyes are already popping in that and panel. It's, it's worse later on where he, he, he kind of moans and they're both shocked that he's not dead yet. Yeah, and they, they crush his head. And then later on they find out he's still alive. Yeah. Which is... Uh, that, that, I found that more gruesome than anything he did in The Boys, which was supposed to out-preach a preacher, Mm. but was just largely comical in many ways and over the top. To be honest, though, I I did find the torturer really funny. The torturer is. The torturer's quite a... Yeah. You could tell me or not, I'm going to torture you. He's an engaging guy. Yeah. Which is a very Tarantino from Reservoir Dogs, isn't it? The, the torturer's an engaging guy. He's, he's funny. And yeah. You, you find yourself smiling at a few of his lines. You and like you go, the guy's cutting your ear off. Yeah, and then suddenly he's crushing this poor guy's head. Yeah. And it's, it's a very uncomfortable scene in the story. There's a very interesting character beat that follows this up. Hatherley kind of breaks, doesn't he? Yeah. And Hatherley says he will talk in the hope that this will actually get Fury and Elgin released. And Elgin is the one that stands up and says, not a chance. 
I will contradict everything you say. Yeah, here it says, Sir, if you attempt any of that, I will contradict every single word. I will scream blue murder if I have to, but I will make these sons of bitches listen. I will describe the shot you took and the angle you took it from, and I can do it perfectly. I will convince them, and then, so help me God, I will make them kill me. Mr. Hatherley, we came here to kill a dictator so people could be free. That's the point of our country, to make things better. And now we have to live up to that, sir. We can't weaken or quit. We can't fail America and let her be just another step along the way, like the kingdoms and the empires and all the rest. And it's, I love that bit. I actually thought the character moments and the dialogue here were fantastic. A prime example of any city's best. Hatherley is confronted, though, by a guy who believes in what they're doing and what they're doing is for the better. Yeah. And even Fury's like, you got no answer to that, have you? Mm. That, which was a very funny line. Yeah. Again, in a scene that is in no way funny. Mm. It was I, great. I liked as well that Fury didn't want um, Thingy to do it, Hadley to do it, because, you know, you can t- you interpret this however you want, but he doesn't want him to do it because he doesn't want to lose his friend. Yeah. There are a few times in it where he will bring Hadley on it on a job or he'll tell him not to do it or he'll make him do something because he doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. Yeah, like he does him. He does look out for George throughout the series. Yeah. And even in the last issue where he goes to the funeral. Yeah. And, uh, spoilers. <laughs> and um, his, George's family don't want to talk to him because he never went to saw him in hospital. Because but, he couldn't bring himself. But George never hated him for that because he said, that's not Fury. Yeah. If I'd have died on the battlefield, he'd have had no problem with it. Mm. And he would have honoured my last wish, my every wish. But dying in a hospital slowly surrounded by disease and illness, that's not Nick. That's Nick can't handle that. Yeah. And I, it is, yeah, he does do an awful lot to protect Hadley throughout the series. I hadn't really considered that until looking at the whole, the thing as a whole. We don't see what the Cuban captain cuts before dropping Elgin in the water. But it's heavily implied he won't be much use to his wife if he does survive. Yeah. Did you get that they cut his balls off? Yeah. Which, yeah. the the That panel alone kind of sells it. Yeah, because it's off panel. Yeah, but... But we see his reaction. You can see him reaching down and... Yeah, it, yeah. and the guy actually says, you won't need them where you're going. Yeah. And then tosses him into the sea to the sharks, which... Oh. I found that a bit much. Um, and this this next scene was the only questionable moment I had in the issue in terms of storytelling. Elgin gets tossed into the water, bleeding, so that the sharks will get into a feeding frenzy, leaving Fury and Hadley surrounded by four armed men on the pier. Somehow, Fury manages to beat three of them down with his shoulders. Yeah. Now, maybe the art didn't really show what the script explained, or maybe... I was missing something. And Hatherley does kick a few of them into the water, which does help. But this felt like Fury got away a bit easily. It felt a bit A-team in how easily he got... I mean, he does take a bullet to the shoulder, Yeah. to be fair. But then that last panel just... But then, yeah, he tears the Cuban captain's face off with his teeth. Yeah. Which does kind of conjure easy. You call that easy? Doesn't it? Yeah. So, I was a bit... It's not the grossest thing that's... No, it's not the grossest thing that happens. That guy's head in the vice was still... Yeah. Was still my thing. Again, the ending delves into Ennis' loves of grey shading. Shirley manages to get away and back to McCusker, who is far more concerned with his political reputation. But the ending 
is the real heartbreaker. Hatherley makes Elgin comfortable after pulling him out of the sea and tries to explain that he's still alive and has a lot to offer. Elgin thanks him and then just looks at Fury who puts a bullet in his head. Much to Hatherley's abject horror. Because he doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He just says, Colonel I appreciate Fury. everything you've done for me. Colonel Fury? And Fury just says, yeah. And then shoots him. Which surely put a hole in the boat. <laughs> just, I'm just thinking, you know. Yeah. It's entirely possible the head didn't stop the bullet. But, you know. Who knows? It was pretty tense all the way through this issue, though, with Shirley being beaten at the same time Nick was being tortured. Yeah, it's it starts black. Yeah. And then goes completely black. <laughs> and it just when you think it can't get darker... Yeah. The next storyline comes along. And this issue, it gets dark, then it brightens up a bit, and then gets dark again. Oh, it only brightens up slightly. <laughs> uh, it's always darkest just before it goes completely black. Yeah. Sums up this. Uh, and it darkens up Fury considerably in this three-part story. Whilst the Fury of his first Max series was a deeply cynical, cold warrior with no war, it was largely played for laughs. In this series, Ennis is not playing the situation or the characters for humour. The Bay of Pigs backdrop adds to the whole Our Man in Havana vibe given off in the last storyline, but is much more appropriate here, given that Fury is actually in Havana. Here we see a Fury farmer enmeshed in the grey area of war. In this instance, US involvement is being hidden. They are fighting people they trained previously, and the mission he is sent on is a mission impossible, in that the Secretary will disavow any knowledge of his actions if he's caught in his mission to assassinate an elected official. It's nice to see different sides of the character, and unlike a lot of times when Ace takes on long-standing characters, this felt like he kept him within character, instead of twisting him to fit his story. Very bleak character. Yeah. But nevertheless, and so each storyline builds on the other one, and it just gets better and better as we go along. The next three-issue storyline, running over issues seven through nine, again, has a series of covers that are linked together. I thought this was a great way of saying to the reader, look, this story is thematic without having part one of three splashed all over the cover. This time, the common thread is silhouetted images. On the first issue, a man strides towards the reader. The only identifiable element, a skull and crossbone on his chest, means this is obviously Frank Castle, even though he isn't the Punisher in this story. Fury is hidden in the foliage behind the man, as is a Vietnamese general. Issue 8 is a silhouette of a semi-automatic rifle, and the montage this time is a Vietnamese child and Castle and Fury opening fire, whilst the final part of the story has more silhouettes of bombers dropping their payload as Fury lines up the Vietnamese general in the sight of his sniper rifle. Titles this time, issue 7 was Mr. Chained Blue Lightning, which was a quote from the outlaw Josie Wales. It's Mr. Chained Blue Lightning himself! You remember that? I've not seen it. you never seen Josie Wales? Nope. He goes in to buy some horses. And um, the four men are taking their turns to gang rape this poor Indian woman. Yeah. Native American woman, I suppose we should say nowadays. And Josie's uh, wonderfully snarky throughout the entire scene because it's Clint. Yeah. And uh, he says to the bartender who's doing nothing about this, do you think these fine gentlemen will be finished with their job soon enough that we can conduct our business? And they just look at him. And they recognise him as being Josie Wales, who's wanted. Yeah. Mr. Chain Blue Lightning himself! And then Josie puts a bullet in all of them. Fair enough. And he said, it's, it ends brilliantly, because he just looks at the bartender and says, so those horses belong to those gentlemen. 
the implication being, well, those guys are dead now, (laughs) so now they're mine. And then that squaw that he saved follows him through the rest of the film, and he ends up building up a little family of people that he saved, even though he doesn't want them. (laughs) And there's a, there's a beautiful line in it too. He saves this really old Native American bloke. Yeah. And uh, Josie tells him, "Stop following me. <laughs> it's people I like don't tend to stick around long." Mm. And the Indian guy says to him, "I've noticed people you don't like tend to not stick around long either." Josie Wales is such a great film. Mm. Really, is a fantastic movie. Issue eight was called "The Judgment of Your Peers." which is from The White Man's Burden, again by Rudyard Kipling. And number nine was called Nobody Does It Quite The Way You Do, which is, of course, a lyric from Carly Simon's James Bond theme, Nobody Does It Better. 1970, Fury's affair with DeFabio continues, despite her marriage to Senator Puck McCuskey, but even she doesn't know what mission Fury has been dispatched upon this time. With the full deniability clause in play, Fury has been sent to assassinate General Litron Giap, the North Vietnamese premier military training strategist. With Fury's right-hand man, George Hadley, staying behind to man the radio due to his feeling he's losing his edge, Fury has been partnered with sniper Frank Castle. Fury and Castle spur the life of a young Vietnamese boy who witnesses them trekking through the jungle, and the boy spills his guts to a Vietnamese patrol. Fury and Castle are subsequently captured and brought before Giap, who informs them that the real reason the CIA want him dead. Apparently, several high-ranking officers in the CIA are involved in a heroin smuggling operation, specifically three agents named Cochrane, Seven and Brent the three agents that sent Fury on this mission. Giap wants a confession from Fury, and he believes this will bring an end to the Vietnam War and scandalise the US government. Fury isn't about to let that happen, but even he isn't sure which of those two options he wants to avoid. With Fury and Castle overdue by hours, the CIA order an airstrike on the area, a Fury-initiated backup that will kill them, thus avoiding any unpleasant questions, but also kill the target. Shirley manages to get Hatherley to talk, and, horrified, she demands McCuskey do something about the airstrike. He does. Bugger and all. Fury and Castle, however, manage to A-team their way out of the Viet Cong prison, and Fury sets about destroying the evidence whilst Castle takes up a sniping position. Giap confronts Fury, asking him what has he done? Giap could have ended the war, prevented many needless deaths, but before Fury can answer, Castle snipes Giap. Fury runs for Castle, and they manage to beat feet as the airstrike happens. Back home, Fury is greeted by McCuskey, who says he tried very hard to get the airstrike called off. He also says that three CIA agents, Cochrane, Seven and Brent, were found this morning around the back of a brothel with their throats cut. Fury says he's off to Cambodia, but if he thought McCuskey had anything to do with that heroin stuff, he just lets the words hang there. McCuskey says, you'd what? Ooh. The story again begins in the present day with Fury reaming off statistic about Nam versus the more current conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. Ennis handles this wonderfully as a writer, dropping a fur bit of exposition on the reader regarding the central differences between the conflicts, but through Fury's point of view. As Ennis has done throughout this entire series, Fury's dialogue is sparse and to the point, but never becomes polemic, but a study in how to craft magnificent comic book dialogue that tells the story but isn't overwritten or the writer espousing his own political viewpoint through the character. 
There's probably a little bit of Ennis talking through there, though. I didn't get that from this. I'd agree with you. There's an awful lot of pre. If one, if preacher has a failing, it's that Ennis's point of view, as voiced through his characters, is always the right point of view. Whereas in this, I got a lot more shades of grey. I didn't yeah. hear Ennis's voice in any of this, in terms of his explanation of why they were doing what they were doing. Oh, me neither. It's just that bit about Afghanistan and Vietnam. You think? Yeah. I got, basically I got, he was throwing out, these are the facts of why we are involved in this. And Fury is on that mission. And it's not Fury's job to question his orders. Yeah, yeah. So I, but I didn't get he was coming down on this was bad or this was good, which is why I think I like it. But he it. isn't, except for in that bit where he's very strongly against it. That's, that's the strongest <coughs> there is when it comes to right and wrong. Yeah, but Fury's against people whining about Afghanistan and Iraq is the point that Fury's making. That's his quote, not mine. Yeah. So we're not getting political. But the character is. And the character is basically comparing Afghanistan and Iraq to Vietnam. Mm. And yeah, you're right. It is the only time Fury even comes close to condemning a mission that he's been sent on. Yeah. But he doesn't even do... He doesn't go that far, does he? He merely points out that, yeah, this is what's happening in Iran and Afghanistan, but this it's is what worse. happened in Vietnam. Yeah. And it's nowhere near as bad as that. And that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the closest fury comes to making a political statement. Yeah. But even then, he doesn't actually make one. Do you get what I'm saying? He doesn't come down on one He's side of the fence or the other. This is worse. Yeah. yeah. He, doesn't, he doesn't condemn any of it. Because as a soldier, that's not his job. Yeah. Which, and again, that's why I liked it. And it's, to me, it's the very opposite of Civil War. Where I felt Miller's politics dripped from every page of what should be an entertaining superhero story. Whereas this, were Ennis would be well within his remit to offer some kind of political commentary. Yeah. He doesn't. He merely sets out, this is what was happening. Fury is on this mission. You as a reader, make your mind up which side of the fence you would be on. Yeah. And this is why this is excellent, and the aforementioned story was not. Mm. I'm not being preached at in this story. I'm not being told involvement by whoever in this country's affairs is a bad or a good thing. I am being given the facts of the situation as Fury has told them. I've been allowed the credit for the intelligence that I can make up my own mind as to where I stand on these issues. Yeah. Or I can just do what I did and go, well, I don't really know much about the politics of Indochina, <laughs> but my God, this is a good comic. Yeah. So, I think he did an excellent job with it. I really do. I really think this is fantastic stuff. Every one of these stories so far has begun in sun-drenched climes, which I can imagine are filmed looking all washed out. Haverly's conversation about losing his edge is notable for Fury's reaction. Haverly now has five kids and just isn't into it anymore. And Fury, instead of going off on one, simply accepts it, but still wants Haverly on the radio helping him out, which plays into what you said earlier on yeah. about him looking out for his friend, which is, is what he's doing. Looking out for his friend or looking out for himself. 
Well, he wants... He doesn't say, go spend time, if he finally says, do this mission with me, and then have some time. Yeah, but Fury, for his own... If Fury's not stupid, he's not a kamikaze no. agent. If Fury is on a mission, even a plausible deniability mission, he wants to come home from that. Yeah. At no point do you ever get that Fury's suicidal. He is prepared to die... Yeah. But he's not suicidal. He but he doesn't want to die. Mm. And Hatherley's the best there is. So having Hatherley back him in whatever capacity increases, those increases odds. the odds of him coming back alive. Yeah. So I didn't I don't have a problem with that. It's not yeah, do this for me and I'll let you have leave. It's I need you to do this for me. And then you can bugger off and spend some time. No, that's, that's what I was thinking about. It's, he's, he's thinking of himself first. Yeah, he wants to come back alive. Yeah. But Hatherley wants him to come back alive. Yeah. So that makes perfect sense. Of course, this means they're going to need another sniper. Yeah. Enter Frank Castle. Ennis's Punisher Max series, in addition to being magnificent for the most part, featured Fury in a few story arcs. And here he gets to add meat to the bones of the relationship between Fury and Castle, who both respect each other. They're both taciturn, get-the-job-done types and form a pretty good bond rather quickly. Because I have often thought, what does Fury think of the Punisher? Yeah. And if you read Fury Max, sorry, Punisher Max, yeah, doesn't really seem to have much of a problem with him. No. Have you not read Punisher Max? I've, I've read enough to have read some of the ones with Nick Fury in. Right. But I didn't like Nick Fury in that. Did you not? No, because when I was reading it, it was quite... It was a few years ago now. Yeah, we had the hardcovers, and then I never got the end of the, the, the series, and then no. I started reading the hardcovers again, mm. and I couldn't get the hardcovers anymore. One of them's really expensive, so I picked up the trades. It was around the first time I read Preachers, so I was like 14. Mm. And it was... it was a Punisher, I was alright being like that. Because yeah, because like, essentially the Punisher is I will kill Batman. But I'd already read Welcome Back Frank. Now, whilst it's toned down, it's still along those tracks. Yeah. So I was like, right, okay, I can, I can roll with this. It's pretty cool. He's blowing all these guys up. He's, he's killing scumbags. He's turning him down. You know, it's just... <laughs> it's visually disgusting, but appealing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's somewhere I'm entertained. <laughs> but but I, I'd, I'd gotten used to Nick Fury as a Marvel character. So having him, like, being all swirly and being, you know, killing people like that was... What? No, but this is wrong. Yeah, I think that is one of the complaints he did receive about his first Fury Max miniseries is that it didn't really jibe with the Furies we knew him. Yeah. Whereas apart from swearing a bit, mm. I can totally buy this as being the well, Fury of Shield. I, I definitely prefer this one now. Hmm. But at the time, it was so different that it. it felt yeah. But Pun- Punisher Max is really good. I really enjoyed Punisher I Max. I haven't finished it. It's worth, it's worth just reading them all. I blitzed through that does entire it, series in a week. Does it have an ending? Yeah. Right. Ennis's run ends. I mean, obviously the Punisher don't get killed or anything. Yeah, they carry on with... Ennis's run builds throughout its entire run. Yeah. There are seeds dropped throughout all the previous storylines that build to a conclusion. Right. And his entire run can be read as one story if you choose to and it works as a story and it comes to an ending right. and then the next writer picks up and carries on do the, do the specials and one shots and such I don't know because I don't have them and I don't have Punisher Born either which I've always wanted to read because that's, that's a Vietnam, Vietnam War story yeah. yeah so I've never read that but I do quite fancy it anyway back to this series <laughs> Fury's meeting with the CIA team briefing him on his mission is exceptionally well done there's tons of dripping tension. Remarks that Gaiap has risen in the ranks quicker than Fury. Unspoken history between Fury and Gap from the last time. But even Fury, even here, sorry, Fury's on the ball enough to ask what McCuskey's involvement in all of this is. 
Because he still doesn't trust him, does he? And he just so happens to be involved in everything Nick is. Yeah, well, and he's also involved in what we will find out later on is this cocaine smuggling ring. I mean, Fury doesn't say anything. If he suspects them of anything, which I doubt he does at this point, Mm. it's all left ambiguous. Which, again, I quite like. Fury's relationship with DeFabio is ongoing, despite her marriage. DeFabio has some interesting opinions on, her, on the involvement in foreign affairs. Interestingly, Fury doesn't agree, but it isn't his place to offer opinions. Mm. He has a job to do, which is Fury throughout the entire series. The, the, the little sex scene's a bit funny just because it shows Nick kind of getting jealous of McCusker. Yeah, that McCusky's given her what she wanted, which is marriage and stability. But the flip side of that is he's not giving her what she wants, if you know what I mean. Mm. Fury's giving her that. Yeah. So We're on the same page, though, then? Yes. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Because the sex scenes, they're not graphic. But they're, 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 but they're certainly, very Ennis. Yeah, they're very Ennis. There's a lot of nudity and sex going on in this series. It's Fury Max. It's not recommended for children. It's, it's the wordplay as well. I thought some of the dialogue was... Very suggestive. Yes. And funny at the same time. Yeah, he does a very good job with it. Um, we've seen Fury do some very questionable things. We know Castle will do some questionable things. Neither one of them can bring themselves to kill a child, even if it jeopardises the mission. Which it does. Which they know it will Yeah. as well. They know that what they've done is stupid. I've said before when we've covered stories with moral ambiguity that you can have your central protagonist be morally questionable and do horrible things, but as long as he's not as horrible as the bad guy, Mm. you will root for him. Which comes back to Punisher Max. Yeah. Punisher does some god-awful things in that series. He doesn't do it to good people. No, he devises some elaborate torture schemes and elaborate ways of killing people, but the people he's killing are irredeemable scum. And so because of that, you're on Frank's side. And it's only when you step back a bit and you go, that's actually quite gross. (laughs) But like you say... Is is that really not as bad as what they're doing? (laughs) The, the, The one that's coming to mind is the sequence where they're all running out the house and he's yeah, got a mounted machine gun. Yeah, and he's got a mounted yeah. machine gun and he's just cutting them <laughs> to bits in front of children. <laughs> yeah. But they were really bad men. <laughs> yep. Or the bit with microwave. Yeah, well, I, I didn't re- that's the only downside. I didn't like what they did with microwave. Yeah. That's the only negative. But we're not covering Punisher, Max. We should, though. Maybe we should. Yeah, we'll see. Um... That, what I just said, doesn't really apply to this storyline. Fury never does anything really horrendous. Mm. Fury himself doesn't. Yeah. In many ways. But it applies to Ennis's approach to Frank Castle, as we've talked about in Punisher Max. The second part of the story is beautifully structured for a single issue. The voiceover makes it quite plain that Fury and Castle are caught, largely because of the child that they didn't kill. But the action is a flashback showing Fury and Castle's last stand against the Viet Cong. The art, which have, I've no, we've not really focused much on the art, but it's fantastic in mm. these sequences, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's cartoony, mm, but, but really gritty and... It's an interesting combination. Yeah. And sequentially, it's brilliant. 
it mm. tells the story perfectly apart from that little niggle I had in the last storyline on the pier but I'll cut that some slack because it was a one off this scene here is exceptionally dark but hysterical oh yeah yeah that actually made me laugh out loud while I read it yeah and then I did that should I be laughing at this <laughs> kind of thing you know that uncomfortable he, he was a bad guy he deserved it uh, but was he though yeah from their point of view he's just another soldier doing his job yeah but in this case Fury and Castle he's their enemy so they have to take him out Castle and Fury are herded by the Viet Cong because Fury realises that they're not trying to kill them they no, want them no, alive yeah. And then they reach a large cliff. So think of that scene in First Blood that he jumps off. I can fall off a cliff and sew myself up. <laughs> Fury asks if the water is deep enough to dive into. Hmm. Castle shoots a Viet Cong soldier and then hurls him He's over the cliff. He's not even dead yet. He's not even dead. <laughs> hurls him over the cliff and then we get... Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the panel of him in the river. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... I, I laughed out loud and then was uncomfortable that I'd laughed yeah. out loud. Ennis's black humour at its very finest. <laughs> the scene where Gaiap, or Giyup, or whatever the hell his name is, shows Fury his evidence. And we see Fury knows Gaiap is actually making a good point and telling the truth. Fury knows he's not lying. His yeah. evidence is incontrovertible. He's got proof that this is going on. This is exactly the kind of moral ambiguity we've talked about before that we like in our storytelling. Giyup could bring an end to the Vietnam War, saving many thousands of lives on both sides, but in doing so, he would destroy the US government's reputation and rip the heart out of the United States populace, exposing the government to corruption charges and generally gutting the fabric of US society and the position in the world over a war that many people didn't even want to fight. However, Fury is now left with a dilemma, because as a soldier and a company man, he can't allow this to happen. It would destroy his country and its standing in the world, and it's magnificently and he has his handled, anyway. and he's got his orders. Mm. Exactly. So, there's no strum and drang, there's no melodramatics, the facts are laid out, each side has their say, and the characters are left to deal with the fallout. And Fury deals with it. Whether he makes the right decision is something that follows through the rest of the story. I did like Shirley flirting the information out of Hatherley yeah. and finding out where Fury was, which does, again, pays into issue 13, yeah. where we find out that Hatherley was always quite fond of her. And I loved that it's Fury's backup plan to have the airstrike. Mm. If the mission goes south and we get caught, we know Gaiup's here. Earthstrike takes him out and kills us. You don't have to explain what we were doing there. We're just a bunch of body parts. Which just shows how smart he is. I mean, narratively, it adds some great drama, but it also shows that Fury's just about the mission. Again, excellent storytelling. Uh, in the final issue, Pug takes Shirley's call about Fury and the pending Earthstrike, and he swears blind he will do something about it, and then promptly puts his feet upon the table and reads the newspaper. What a jolly nice man. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, this third part was balls-out action and handled exceptionally well in both art and story. Gayup gives Fury a hard time for the decision he's made, but it's the end where Ennis's fabled moral ambiguity rears its head again. Cochrane, Brent and Seven have been found dead around the back of a brothel, Pug tells Fury, but this is easy to cover up. Fury for his part, doesn't bat an eye. 
Ennis makes absolutely nothing of this. There are no tells, there's no nod to the audience or winks or anything. If Fury did this, or if Castle did it, or if Fury arranged it but wasn't actually there, all these thoughts go through the reader's mind, but there are no answers given. I I like to think that Frank did it, and when Nick found out, it was like, ah, oh, good, good on him, yeah. Why would Frank do it? Um, There's nothing in it for Castle to do this. And did Castle even come back to Miami with him? Wouldn't yeah. Castle have stayed out there? I don't know. I don't. I, I just read it has as seeds being planted for the Punisher. Yeah, that works. Yeah. I got that Fury did it. My interpretation was Fury did it. I got that. This was the first he'd heard of it. Yeah, that, that works. That Castle did it. Mm. Whether Castle did it on Fury's orders, yeah, or whether Castle did it off his own back and Fury's not too broken up about it, or whether Fury did it. But this is what I'm talking about. Both our interpretations are valid because there's no answer. Yeah, Fury did it and says nothing. Yeah, Castle did it and says nothing. Mm. Or Castle did it under Fury's orders and says nothing. But either way, the three guys who caused this are dead. Yeah. And Fury actually out asks McCuskey, is he involved in it? And McCuskey's like, what would you do with about it if I was? Mm. Cocky get. So my favourite part of that issue was the, the fight scene. The one in part three? Especially the bit with the snipers, yeah. Where Castle's sniping everybody. Yeah, and the, the monologue over it where there was the soldier who, who always oh, knew yeah. what was going on with the, the, the scope of his sniper and the sound of it and anything he could be watching anything happen but as long as his sniper was still working he, he knew exactly what was right it made sense of the world for him yeah yeah it is a pretty good monologue that and Castle's sniping's really good yeah isn't it two 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 excellent he excellent. is that character with the, the greasy vest and the, the bandana smoking <laughs> a cigarette yeah just taking him out <laughs> one at a time calm and peaceful uh, this, I think this may have been my favourite storyline so far. Ennis handles it masterfully, neither praising nor condemning Fury for his actions. But he doesn't really do that with anybody. Giyup is the bad guy ostensibly, but it's heavily implied that Pug McCusky could just as easily be the bad guy of the series. Or maybe it's Fury. I, I read it kind of like, no one is the bad guy but McCusky. Yeah, he, he, uh, Giyup is labelled... A bad guy. At this point in the history, Fury's enemy is Gaiap. Yeah, but that's only a label. Yeah. He's not the definitive bad guy. He's someone you're told is the bad guy. Yeah. Or, maybe, as in life, yeah. there are no good guys and bad guys. Maybe there are just guys. Yeah. Uh, all just trying to go through life as best they can, some serving their own self-interest, some trying to look at the bigger picture. And those, like Frank Castle, who don't care either way. Mm -hmm. More Dave Johnson goodness is on display for the next three issues. On issue ten, the man known as Barracuda stands with a bloody machete over his shoulder and a gun in his hand, whilst Fury is seen as a skeleton in the background. Issue eleven is a close-up of Barracuda, his white vest covered in blood, and in the blood, the face of Fury. And issue twelve, Pug McCuskey wipes the corners of his mouth with the US flag, which turns into tentacles reaching out across the globe as a cartoony Fury stands below. Some good abstract work from John but I thought they lacked the punch of the earlier issues but I can't ask because it be me mm. they're wrong with them no perfectly acceptable do you think they were running behind 
on the deadline further now. Yes, because the, the, the bits on the back. Yeah, the, the next, next time yeah. the art is black and white instead of in colour. Um, yeah, I noticed that. Dialogue, yeah. yeah, I noticed that as well. Maybe they were pushed for, for deadline time now. As before, the titles are all quotations of other works. Issue 10, The Sunny Slopes of Long Ago. Here's to the Sunny Slopes of Long Ago was a favourite toast of John A. Lomax, co-founder of the Texas Folklore Society. Issue 11, my brother earned his medals at My Lie in Vietnam. Is yet another Pogues lyric, this time from the, bows, the boys from County Hell. Are you going to give us a few bows of that? No, I don't know that one. You don't know that one. And issue 12, Before Man Was War Waited, is from Cormac McCarthy's novel Blood Meridian. Nicaragua, 1984. Fury and Hatherley have been dispatched to disprove claims that the CIA was dealing narcotics to fund its contra-training efforts, only to find the investigation instantly resolved. Fury found the operation's CO, Captain Captain Constanzo, with drugs on his table, a gun in his hand and a hole in his head, alongside a suicide note confessing to his completely unsanctioned entanglement with cocaine. With this evidence, Fury and Haverly could return home without scrutinising the activities of the Special Forces men and their leader... Barracuda. Back home, Pug confronts Shirley about her relationship with Fury after Shirley stumbles upon him and a prostitute. Pug has been careful over the years and everything is in his name as he was aware from the beginning it was a marriage that was politically convenient. Shirley's allowed to leave whenever she wants, but if she does, she'll be penniless and homeless. In Nicaragua, Fury and Haverly split up to investigate the claims with Haverly checking out Costanzo's suicide note and Fury tailing Barracuda. He discovers that Barracuda arranged Costanzo's suicide and is running a huge drug trafficking ring that is involved raising the area of civilians. Haverly is caught by Barracuda's men and Fury confirms that the coke goes to the north and the money funds the Contras. Barracuda simply lets Fury and Haverly go, knowing he is untouchable. For Haverly, this is the last straw. Barracuda is a disgrace to the uniform, but symptomatic of a larger problem, as Fury finds out when McCuskey tells Fury that Barracuda and his boys have disappeared into South America, rich and careful to leave behind evidence with names, dates and places that could be very embarrassing to the US government if made public, which it will be if Fury harms any one of them. Fury asks McCuskey if his name was one of them, and McCuskey states that, even if it is true, how can he fund a war that the US people don't want and Congress won't support? Fury says they don't. Fury reminds McCuskey of an earlier conversation. This isn't about communism, it's about treating people badly and then being surprised when they finally fight back, and then the US backing the people they are fighting back against. McCuskey has been prolonging wars all around the world for arms, profits and votes. McCuskey merely points out that Fury has also prolonged wars for his need to fight. Which of them is worse? Fury gives it five years, then gives Barracuda the biggest beatdown of his life. Like it makes a difference. Barracuda, first introduced in Punisher Max, is a quintessential Ennis bad guy. Repugnant, ruthless, and yet not without his charm. His respect for Fury is nicely played, even though it seems not to cur one jot for his country or the uniform that he wears. Marked contrast to a lot of other characters in the strip. My only real complaint with this is the art in the later stages of the story. The girl with Barracuda looks exactly like a, sh- a young Shirley de Fabio. Did you not think? And I thought that was a little bit confusing. Yeah. She looks exactly like it, doesn't she? Yeah. Which, which did confuse me slightly in this one. I don't have a lot of page-by-page page breakouts of this one. Well, I, I thoroughly of, enjoyed the story. Yeah. 
But speaking of that that final bit, though, yeah, even, even though it was a well-deserved beating, you, <laughs> you knew that from the start nothing bad would happen to Barracuda because this taking place before Punisher. Yeah, because it's a prequel to Punisher. It's the problem with all prequels. Yeah, but that's why it was so painful reading this when you want Fury to kill him and he can't because... He's in Punisher yeah. Max. Yeah. I, I did love the part of the two-page panel where Fury gives him his beat down. And you can see all the broken Yeah, bones. and we get a shot of his skeleton yeah. showing what Fury breaks, which is an awful lot. Yeah. It has to be said. In an awful lot of places. Yeah, it's quite amazing. The toes as well. Yeah. Oh, oh. And the fingers. Yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was quite grotesque. Yeah, all of the baseball bat. Yeah, I, I mean, he tosses a dead baby at Haverley. He, he kicks it in his face, yeah? Yeah, in one of the grossest scenes in the entire issue. The gross than that is when you see, at the end of issue two, when you and Fury stumble across... Yeah, when Fury stumbles camp. across the, the camp and that Barracuda has you, killed all the civilians. You see the, the it's still attached to the umbilical cord, oh. which I'm assuming was still attached to the, the mum. Yeah. yeah. And you see that the boot print around it yeah well you quite clearly see the mother though with oh, the umbilical yeah, yeah. cord still and yeah they've just stood on it yeah and it's the implication of the footprint is Barracuda did that yeah Barracuda just stood on that baby and it's yeah of all the people you wanted Fury <laughs> to take outside and put a gun to his head execution style yeah it was Barracuda and yeah he's the one who essentially gets away with it yeah I think that was very definitely the the, 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 the grossest part of the entire series yeah, and there was well, Barracuda, despite being charming, has no other redeemable qualities. Yeah, yeah. as we will see later, Gayup Gayup holds no grudges. Mm. As far as he was, because he's Fury's opposite number, he was following orders. Yeah, yeah, he was doing what his country wanted him to do as a soldier, as was Fury. Yeah, and now the war's over. Gayup's. I have nothing against you. I have nothing against you personally. Which is what Fury had to tell Haverley about Steinhoff yeah. at the beginning. But Barracuda is... Barracuda's irredeemable. Barracuda's a scumbag. Mm. And read Punisher Max if you want to see <laughs> what happens to the Barracuda. He has his own series as well. Yeah, he does have a six-issue spin-off miniseries, doesn't he? But yeah. I've never read it, so I don't know anything about it. The Cuda. Uh, essentially, this is the culmination of the story with a one-issue epilogue to follow. The plot threads of the entire story come to a head with Ennis pulling no punches on where Fury's involvement in other people's problems have gotten him, but also ensuring that Fury and McCusky are not that different, although Fury is much more honourable than McCusky. Shirley DeFabio is easily the most sympathetic character in the story, and her plight is arguably more tragic for all that. Fury isn't stuck... He will end up as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., which presumably, as part of Marvel's sliding timescale, is still in his future. And the art does a good job of showing that whilst Fury has aged, it's at a substantially slower rate than McCuskey or Haverley. Politically, I know bugger all about the Contra affair, so I cannot attest to how accurate these scenes are, but as has been the point of the series from the start, the specific war doesn't matter. Those who do not learn the mistakes of the past are forever doomed to repeat them. Doomed. It was getting really sad at this point as well. It is With one of those Shirley series. And yeah. And Nick. Yeah, and you think it can't get any bleaker. Yeah. And then it, it gets then takes bleaker. you out of the war, aren't you? 
But there was the bit when she confronts him after the prostitute turns back the home. Yeah. And you, I really didn't like Pug, but he was right. Yeah. About the things he said about Shirley. He was, she was still sleeping with Nick. Yeah. And it's, she's confronted with her own immorality. Yeah, there, there are genuinely no, the, the only good guy in this is, is Havilah. Yeah, George Havilah is the closest this story has to a good guy. Yeah. In, throughout the entire story. Even Fury, who is the main protagonist, Fury has a lot of blood on his copybook. Yeah. But he still remains a likeable guy mm. who you understand all of the motivations for. Yeah. Which ultimately is is why I think this story works as well as it does. The final issue has a cover that is a close-up of Fury's lined face with the many places he's been dotted all over his face with indicators as to which lines they've caused. It's a neat artistic way of showing how Fury's life is literally written all over his face. The title, But Yet We'll Write a Final Rhyme While Waiting Crucifixion, is a poem written by Harry Breaker Morant, entitled Butchered to Make a Dutchman's Holiday. Is he not going for Rick at the Gates of Hell again? Uh, it did feel a little <laughs> bit like that, but Breaker Morant was a real person. Yeah. 1999, as George Hadley passes away in hospital, Shirley DeFabio weeps for the roads not taken. Roads that could have been with a good man like George, who, on his deathbed, proclaimed that he always liked Shirley. Fury cannot weep, even at the funeral, where Hatherley's granddaughter Courtney asks Fury if what her grandfather did made any kind of difference. At the Washington Monument, Fury bumps into Latrong Gayap, somehow still alive despite Castle's sniper bullet in the airstrike. He's here to attend a Smithsonian conference on Cold War history, and he muses that, whilst they may have won that battle, what did his country really win? Perhaps, Gayap thinks, this is why people like he and Fury are allowed to live to see the full extent of the follies. The two old war horses shake hands. At the McCuskey home, the full impact of George's death hits Shirley DeFabio, especially as Pug's hooker is upstairs with Pug. Shirley puts a bullet in both of them, and after a call to Fury, one in herself. Fury finally answers Courtney. He said when he first met George, he asked if the flag meant anything. Fury said it should. George said it meant everything. It is the debt owed to the past and the responsibility owed to the future. It was right there for all to see. Blood on the bandages of the wounded, brave men and all the stars in the sky. And as Fury sits, the tape recorder on his lap, a gun at his side. Essentially, an epilogue explaining where all the characters end up and providing closure. Ennis does an excellent job of bringing everything full circle with the end of the story being the question that Hatherley posed at the beginning of the story that we didn't get an answer to back in issue one. Oh, that was great. Mm. I really did think this was absolutely magnificent. I did wonder why Shirley was with Hatherley on page one on Hatherley's deathbed instead of the many, many children and grandchildren he has. But it's a great moment for the character of Shirley de Fabio as she realises that what she wanted, a good man to look after her, was under her nose all along. It's a genuinely powerful and shocking moment for the character, gorgeously written and drawn, and done in one page. Mm-hmm. God, Ennis is good when he wants <laughs> to be, isn't he? Mm. When he's on form, yeah. he's absolutely magnificent. And because it's such a rarity... 
I don't think it's a rarity more than it's it's easier to do the boys. Yeah. Isn't it, really? I mean, could you keep this up for 65 issues? Possibly not. I don't know. The family being upset about Fury never visiting in his final days is a good way of alienating the title character. But it takes George's granddaughter to point out that Haverly himself isn't upset by this. Ennis's structure of the issue is very good. Within the issue itself, he structures the single story so that it begins with the question, not addressed until the end of the issue. But this ties into how he structured the entire series, with the question that Courtney asks here being given the answer that we didn't get back in issue one, which is, I thought was incredible storytelling. I thought it was great. What did you think of Liang Li Trong Gayap still being alive? I, I rolled with it. Did you? He just, yeah, because I like what he said, the bullet just missed the, the bone and the muscle. The bullet just went right through his neck, yep. didn't hit anything, and surviving the earth strike was just dumb luck. He even points out that he has no idea how he did it. Yeah, I mean, he, by, again, this goes to what we've said before, by pointing out the abs- absurdity of the situation... It works. Yeah, because yeah. like you, I just went, oh, all right, I'll buy that. Yeah, but I think <laughs> this scene only works with Guy up. Yeah, because we've followed him from the very beginning, Yeah, just like we've followed Fury. He also seems to have weathered the years better than Fury, in outlook, if not physically. And the scene where they shake hands... Because Fury's initially shocked mm. that Giap's offering him his hand. Because even though he told Havily at the beginning yeah. that no one is your definitive enemy... Yeah, Steinhoff's not the bad guy anymore. It, he, he can't handle it himself. Mm. Which, again, yeah. is a good piece of character. But ultimately, Fury does accept it. Mm. And Fury shakes his hand. Because he's not the bad guy anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it. I thought everything about this was brilliant. Shirley's moment of clarity is another excellent character beat. Long in the setting up, short in payoff. Pug's latest flame wanders the house wearing very little. And this coupled with the vodka and the Hatherly revelation caused Shirley to pick up a gun and end it all. The misery, the humiliation, all of it. Not without another cringeworthy scene, though. Yeah, I actually felt a little bit sorry for the girl, the hooker, the whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Shirley shoots her in the head as she is in flagrante delicto with Pug and then makes Pug finish what he's doing. Yeah. But she'd not done anything wrong. No, but there was no clarity. Shirley didn't have any clarity at that moment. She did what she felt had to be done and didn't care who got in her way. I, I see, I, the only thing I think I would have much preferred if she just shot Pug. Yeah. And then killed herself and let the girl go. Because Shirley, to me, Shirley had never seemed that vindictive as to kill somebody innocent. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying she's innocent, but you know what I mean. She's not done this. Yeah. She's getting paid to do a job. It's not a very nice job. No. But, but it's... She, she's punishing Pug like, yes as she much is. as she can yeah I still felt a bit sorry for her though. yeah I, I just felt Shirley was prepared to do anything yeah at that point yeah okay but, fair enough well it gets even sadder than that though when she phones Nick yeah when she phones Nick Fury he's in the bar you don't see anything no you don't well, see what she does you know and mm. Nick knows even though you don't see it and then we just see her being zipped up in a body bag yeah so we don't actually see what she does but I really like Nick's 
answer when the guy asks him, yeah. did he know them? He just says, I knew her. Yeah. He doesn't even mention McCuskey, does he? Plausible deniability. Yeah. All the missions McCuskey sent him on were black book operations. Yeah. So, to the end, he's a soldier. I, I read it as, he didn't care much that Pug was dead, just surely. Yeah, I can't imagine he shed a tear for Pug, to mm. be honest with you. Um, an exceptionally powerful ending to what has been an exceptionally powerful series. On the one hand, it's a war comic, painted in shades of grey but covered in blood, following one man throughout some of the most contentious conflicts in history. As usual for Ennis, the situations get worse as the series goes along, so much so that we, the reader, cannot believe how bleak the story has become. On the other hand, it's a memorial to Nick Fury. For all intents and purposes, this could be the last Fury story, with its stark ending of a tired Nick sitting alone next to a loaded gun. While it's doubtful Nick would ever take his own life, the implication is provocative. Ennis chooses to concentrate on Nick as CIA man, and there is no mention of S.H.I.E.L.D. or any of Nick's howling commandos or S.H.I.E.L.D. supporting cast members. And some may point this as Ennis once again ignoring the history of the character to make his story work. However, with Marvel's sliding time scale, it's entirely possible Nick only took over S.H.I.E.L.D. in the early 2000s now, placing pretty much all of this series before he came director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm. There's nothing to say that all of this stuff that he's talking about didn't happen before that, and then this bit is happening now. Yeah. That was my take on it anyway, and it fits in, but... He must be very, very old, though. Um, well, yeah, but he's Infinity Formula, isn't it? I, but he doesn't look like he's on the Infinity Formula. He looks better than everyone else. He... I thought... Hadley aged the most, yeah. and you saw him age. No one else aged until the very the end. The last couple of issues. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe that's just an artistic limitation. I don't know. I guess, It yeah. could be, I suppose. Uh, to be honest, to bicker over continuity is to completely miss the point of this thought-provoking, intelligent, and ultimately chilling exploration of the nature of man and war and their relationship with each other. Ennis's knowledge of war history is enough to propel this forward, and whilst I'm sure artistic licence has taken place, there seems like enough real-world furs in this story that adds to the drama. Fury's line to Hatherley about Steinhoff the Nazi in issue two, he wants to keep on fighting, because he's a soldier, and it's all he knows, is equally applicable to Fury himself. And although there is no doubt in the reader's mind that Fury is an honourable man, he's an honourable man who doesn't know what to do if he doesn't have a war to fight. Ennis's dialogue is magnificent. There's none of the clunkiness of some of the humour, and I use the term loosely, of his work in The Boys. None of the laddish dialogue of Hellblazer or even Preacher. All of this feels real. There is humour for sure, and as usual for Ennis, it's jet black, but none of the ridiculous OTT humour of some of his other work. This may be one of the best things he's ever written. The art is straightforward and magnificently tells the story without calling attention to itself with big panels and splash pages that scream out, look at me. And the story structure of four mini-stories within a larger story works exceptionally well. 
Hopefully Marvel will trade this as one volume in the near future, as that's how it deserves to be read. What did you think? I really liked it, but one of the things that helps that was how really, really similar it is to the Metal Gear Solid games. What, taking place in different wars over different time periods? Um, the, the, the big boss stories Mm-mm. are so similar, straight down to um, their appearance. Yeah. Nick Fury looks just like Big Boss. Right. But the fact that the, bo- the themes of both the game and the story is that the only thing that is the say that will is is definitive. The only thing you can rely on is your orders that are given. Mm-hmm. Your enemies could be your friends tomorrow. Your your friends could be your enemies tomorrow. The people you take orders from can change. The people you're fighting can change. The reasons you're doing it change, and um. The only thing you can count on are your orders, right. because those are the only things that. That's all you've got. Yeah, essentially, and then it becomes uh, the the character seeing through the orders and knowing that they're not always the right thing and follows them anyway. Right. So there there are quite a few similarities. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I hadn't considered that. Uh, I think I just said everything in that closing monologue. I thought this was absolutely magnificent. Do yourself a favour, go and find a copy. It's available as two trade paperbacks. I don't know if it's available digitally. Yeah. Um, but the two trade paperbacks are out. If I were you, I'd probably wait, because I would imagine they will do it as one hardcover at some point. Mm. But if you liked any of other Ennis's seriouser work, like Preacher or Hellblazer, or War Stories especially, this is well worth checking out. I, I, like I said, I think this is one of the best things he's done. And if this is to be the end of Nick Fury, then he went out in fine style. Mm-hmm. Didn't he? But not like this. Well, <laughs> at least he went out on his own terms, not like bloody Arca. <laughs> until Bendis actually does until, finish Infinity with that. Until Bendis, yeah. Well, enough of that, Phil. <laughs> uh, next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics. What are we doing? Oh, yeah! Yes. It's the 50th anniversary yes. of Doctor Who. It is. That's next week's episode. We hope you will tune in for Doctor Who in comics. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
Kids comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>